Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Breast Cancer Center's team, who now offer hidden scar breast cancer surgery. This is a new approach to achieving optimal cosmetic results after breast cancer surgery. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org phbcc. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Established in 1973 in the aftermath of two events, the devastating effects of the flood caused by Hurricane Agnes and the demolition of Harrisburg's spectacular State Theater, Historic Harrisburg Association serves as the Capital Region's advocacy organization for historic preservation and urban revitalization. Central Pennsylvania is chock full of history, but sometimes we may not be aware of all that history. Think buildings, think architecture. It doesn't always have to be a place where a significant event happened. So that's what we'll be talking about today, historic preservation and urban revitalization with David Marson, who is the acting executive director of the Historic Harrisburg Association. Mr. Marson, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment... 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I right, have to talk about those two events. Now, I, that language is taken directly from your website. Uh, those two events, Hurricane Agnes and the demolition of the State Theater. Uh, let's take them one by one. But why was we know that his, uh, that Hurricane Agnes was, uh, you know, a historic event here in central Pennsylvania. But why did it prompt the, the, the motive? What was the motivation behind that to create a, a historic preservation organization? The flood was kind of the bottoming out of uh, what was already happening in Harrisburg in the 60s. The suburbanization, which began after World War II and accelerated during the 50s, uh, Harrisburg was losing population. And um, uh, uh, by the time the flood came, there was uh, additional um, devastation in terms of loss of, of buildings, entire neighborhoods in some cases, and uh, people really, uh, with, a, with a flood, they decided to move out and not come back. So why preserving? What was left to preserve? Well, that kind of created in the minds of some people uh, a fresh opportunity. And there was, um, uh, I think, a reaction to suburbanization. People wanted an alternative, and they saw a very attractive alternative because houses, in some cases, were being given away. The city actually had a homesteading uh, program where you could get a, a house for a dollar if you would fix it up and live in it in a, in a, a certain uh, number of years, three or four years. And a lot of people did that, and that really led to bringing back neighborhoods that were slated for wholesale demolition. What about the State Theater? I mean, now this is going back more than 40 years, uh, so there may be many of our listeners who weren't even alive when the State Theater was there. Describe it. Where was it? But again, why was that important in uh, coming up with an organization that, that preserved history? That was, uh, there was a major historic preservation battle over that. Uh, the State Theater as a downtown 1920s uh, live and movie theater. It was a. It was the first run theater. It was as, as ornate and and grand as any theater on Broadway. And by the late sixties, early seventies, it was it was a white elephant. And the the notion of having a uh, a downtown cultural center, which Whitaker Center became. Uh, a couple decades later, had not really become fixed in the community's uh, list of priorities. And so people saw the State Theater as kind of emblematic of where's the city going if we're losing treasures like this? Mm -hmm. You know, they don't build theaters like that anymore. I mean, we have several throughout central Pennsylvania like that. I was just at the Majestic Theater in Gettysburg yes. on Saturday. And you look at that theater and you think, and, and again, this was emblematic of many 
places here in central Pennsylvania that it's it just they were just beautiful. But what you're describing in the 1970s, that wasn't unique to Harrisburg. Correct. That was happening across the country. Why in the 1970s? Was it that we just kind of like looked the other way when it came to historic significance? Well, I would say maybe the looking the other way was more in the 50s and 60s. Okay. And the right. 70s was we, kind we of when, came around. when yeah. attitudes began to change. That's really when the historic preservation movement, many of our sister organizations in Pennsylvania and around the country were, were started in the early 70s. Uh, we were started in 73 uh, because it was this... Uh, the pendulum was swinging back from suburbanization of the prior uh, two decades, and people wanted an alternative. And living in a city and and having attractive surroundings to go with it, that became uh, sort of a, a populist. It was it was a bottom up movement. It wasn't a top down movement coming so much from the government as from uh, ordinary citizens and usually people who couldn't afford a house in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. It- but there was an outward migration that continued through the the 1970s as well that's true yeah this was uh, this was not a total turnaround and and uh, uh, I mean uh, Pomeroy's department store was there until I think the early 90s so um, uh, th- it was a back and forth and and this we're still building uh, in my mind, way too many developments in in central Pennsylvania's farmlands, farther and farther away from the city, with requiring longer and longer commutes and more and more highway infrastructure. When the the trend to consolidate back in, into cities and older towns really uh, not only is appealing to a lot of people, but it just makes so much sense from an environmental standpoint. Now. That really is something that's only started to take on a new life of its own, and that by that I mean uh, younger people especially, moving back into to cities in the last five to ten years. And some of the reasons that you just list, okay, environmental impact, uh, not having to spend as much on gasoline, being able to walk to uh, entertainment sites, uh, you know, maybe even your job. So it's only been, when, like I said, the last decade or so where we've seen that happening in cities. I would say we're seeing it uh, more, uh, it's more visible, it's more conspicuous now, but many of the young people in their 20s are actually second-generation urbanists, if you will. Uh, their parents, uh, my generation, uh, were doing this in the 70s and the 80s, and, and some of them grew up in the suburbs and some of them didn't, but you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, the, the trend has definitely accelerated uh, in the last uh, uh, decade or so, and uh, and not just in, in cities as as a whole, but even in downtown areas, mm-hmm. we're seeing a special trend there uh, in Harrisburg, where old office buildings are being converted into loft apartments, and people are living, you know, right on Market Street in Center City, and they love it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the the theory behind historic preservation. What drives you? Well, I think. <clears throat> First of all, it's it's that desire to to live in an urban environment, and so that fuels the 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 whole process of trying to preserve the character and integrity of historic neighborhoods, whether it's preserving the old buildings or building new housing that is compatible. And we've got a lot of that in Harrisburg. There's been a lot of of, of new construction that, that is built in a traditional urban fashion, close to the sidewalk and not with a, a, a lot of need for lawnmowers and that kind of thing. Uh, but the other thing I think what fuels the desire for historic preservation is, is preserving the, the history and the character, the landmarks, the architecture. People don't go to Europe to see shopping malls in suburban neighborhoods, and I would argue that probably people that are touring and 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 taking vacations in the United States that that they want to see old uh, communities and historic landmarks and and cultural centers, and that's really what the the whole concept of historic preservation is: is preserving that. In my introduction, I talked about. Uh, how 
history to many people means just what you used the word landmarks, but historic sites, preserved historic sites where uh, there was a major event that had an impact on the state or on the country. And to many people, that's historic tourism. When it comes to historic preservation and coming people coming into the city of Harrisburg, Lancaster, York, Lebanon, all these places, uh, what are they looking for when they're looking at older structures, at uh, you know buildings that were built in the 1920s or in the 1800s? You mean visitors? Right. right. Well, uh, that's interesting because we help a lot of visitors and, and actually provide tours to them. They come perhaps because they want to see the Capitol or the or the, the governor's residence or the, the Civil War Museum. But uh, if, if we connect with them, we'll show them the rest of the community. And when they see places like Shypoke or the Front Street Mansions or Midtown uh, or, or just driving up Second Street and seeing the, the changes in architecture as you go from, from, uh, from downtown to Midtown to up by Italian Lake, uh, bus groups are fascinated by this. They love to see that. They, they say, stop the bus. We want to take photographs. Of what in particular? Well, the Front Street Mansions, for one. Uh, that uh, the, the battle we had 10 years or so ago about the three Front Street Mansions at Front and Division Street, when I would tell a bus group from Baltimore, let's say, that, uh, that there was a plan to demolish these three houses, particularly when the, when the azaleas were in bloom and they just were magnificent homes, the people just couldn't believe it. They just couldn't believe it. And and so that's the kind of interest that I think exists, even with the, the, the casual visitor. Is it the architecture? Is it just, okay, for those three mansions in particular, I imagine it's more than just the architecture. It's the whole scene, just bringing it all in when you describe the azaleas. But, uh, you know, are there people who are interested specifically in architecture or just that this is unique, something we haven't seen before? There, there are people who are very interested in, in architecture to, to a, really to an academic level. And we conduct walking tours, Saturday morning walking tours from 10 to noon periodically in the fall and spring, where we really go uh, almost building by building in a neighborhood. And we'll talk about, you know, when was this built and why was it built or who built it or what architect designed it. And that whole story of how a neighborhood evolved, uh, a lot of people find that fascinating. I certainly do. Well, give me an example. Well, give it, Tell me about a neighborhood that uh, many people just don't know the history of it and how it evolved. Well, Midtown, everybody is coming to Midtown now because you've got... It's a hot spot. It's a hot spot. You've got uh, Millworks and Midtown Art Center and now Susquehanna Art Museum, Midtown Scholar Bookstore, and of course the Broad Street Market has been there for over 150 years. Uh, but I think when I lead a, a, a tour of Midtown, what I can show them is that there was a period in the 1870s when that was not urban. It was it started out as farmland, and there are a couple old farmhouses that, that you can actually detect. And then, it, and then those were suburban uh, homes of people who didn't want to live in downtown Harrisburg. There are a couple that HMAC, Harrisburg Midtown Arts Center, built in the 1870s as a, as a freestanding residence, big, big uh, prominent residence, and there's a matching one next door to it. And then as time went by, people started filling in with uh, down near Front Street, a more significant, uh, uh, expensive upscale housing. And as you work your way back towards Third uh, uh, Street, uh, more modest homes, and then Third Street itself was uh, uh, filled with um, uh, commercial structures. You know, storefronts on the first floor, and the family lived upstairs. A lot of that is is there, but a lot of it's been lost. So that's kind of the dynamic of a neighborhood. That uh, and everything I mentioned, there's nothing really famous about any of that. But but uh, but that's okay. What you just described, just it, just in a minute. Describe the whole history of that neighborhood and how it came about. There, there's a group called Midtown Action Council, which was started in 1977. It's the oldest 
continuous neighborhood group in Harrisburg. Th- this is the 40th anniversary, and that they kind of some of their pioneers were sort of involved in the beginnings of the of the uh, historic preservation movement and historic Harrisburg, and that's kind of the. Uh, the story of Midtown from its genesis is interesting, but the story of its rebirth in the last 40 years is 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 equally interesting. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Women's Cancer Center, delivering preventive, diagnostic, surgical, medical, and chemotherapy services to women with gynecologic cancer or other conditions related to the reproductive systems. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org WCC. We're speaking with David Morrison, the acting, acting executive director of Historic Harrisburg Association, talking about historic preservation, and we will be talking about urban revitalization. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call if you have a question or comment. If you would like to email, our email address is smarttalk at WITF.org, and you can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter at Smart Talk, W-I-T-E-F. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. All right, so now there are historic districts in the city of Harrisburg and other cities as well. But talk about a historic district. What is a historic district? Well, let's start with the pioneers who come in, the first people to to buy and renovate a house or acquire it uh, through the homesteading program and so forth. They've made a major investment of probably a lot of sweat equity as well as dollars. They want to protect that investment. They don't want the house next door to suddenly be torn down and turned into a parking lot or to be modernized in an inappropriate fashion. That The character of the neighborhood is important to really to to the benefit of everybody. So a historic district, uh, a municipal historic district is established by the, the city government. We have seven of them in Harrisburg. And that basically provides a, uh, a review and approval process for exterior changes. Anything that can be seen from the street, uh, if you're making a change, must uh, go through an approval process by the Historic Architectural Review Board uh, that meets monthly uh, at the city government center. Mm-hmm. Uh, character, you've used that word several times, the character of a neighborhood. Who determines what the character of a neighborhood is? Well, that can become uh, a bit of a, of a difference of opinion. And, and often uh, when, uh, when there are uh, uh, arguments um, at, at the Architectural Review Board meetings, and, and I've seen a lot of them, it's because not everybody agrees on, on what's important to the character of the neighborhood. Somebody might feel that, that a, a, a more... Uh, innovative uh, modern front door would would look better than trying to find one that matches the original stuff like that but uh, so you you really can get into into some some picky things but I would say overall the architectural review board it's a citizen panel appointed they serve without pay there there must be one architect on the on the five member panel and they all have to live in the city other than that they're just using their judgment and also the feedback that they're getting from people who attend those meetings. And all in all, it's a, it's, it's a very effective process. And, and while some people feel that it, that it constrains them from the liberty to do whatever they want, uh, most people agree that it, it's, it's for the, the larger good to have a system like this. Let's take a phone call from Aaron in Harrisburg. Aaron, you're on the air. Hi, um, thanks for taking my call, guys. Yes, you're I, I think this is a really interesting con- conversation. I'm, I've lived in Harrisburg for about two years now, and I see uh, such a beautiful old historic area that um, 
seems a little bit uh, 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 worn down in certain places. And part of the conversation that I'd like to inject uh, and, and you know, lead to further discussion is, I, I know you're going to talk about it a little bit more later, but revitalization and, and just how a community, um, you know, with historic roots that sort of fallen on hard times and come back and then uh, back and forth a couple times uh, can, can really pull itself into the 21st century, so to speak. Uh, you know, there are all these Fortune 500s in the, in the surrounding 30-mile area. How do you bring some of those downtown, uh, maybe leading to uh, more people wanting to live downtown? There are lots of empty storefronts and homes that need, need some tender love and care. Uh, you know, how do we get more people to come into the area to do that? Uh, and I, I think one way is, is, personally, I think one way is through bringing more jobs downtown. Uh, you know, can you, if you guys could discuss some of the economic policies and, and ways to, uh, to incentivize uh, further revitalization of these historic areas through um, economics. Aaron, thank you very much for your call. That's an excellent question, and that's Maybe really the big question. You know? it, it is, and urban revitalization has always been a uh, uh, an aspect of historic preservation, and that the whole point of it is uh, you can't just have pretty buildings if the community doesn't work and people don't want to live in them, and if all the things that are that are necessary uh, retail. Uh, and quality of life, uh, entertainment options, restaurants, all of that. I think we've been seeing that total pot package develop. I'm going to mention a study that was just released a couple days ago by Harristown Development Corporation, and that's the organization that, that owns and operates Strawberry Square and a lot of other downtown real estate. Harristown was started in the 1970s as kind of sort of uh, the corporate first cousin to the grassroots effort of Historic Harrisburg Association, and they built those high-rises. Uh, and here's what their study just showed, that there is a huge demand for uh, center city living. It, last year alone, uh, 50 apartment units were brought online uh, in older buildings downtown by, by Harristown and by the Vartan Group and by WCI Partners. And they see a demand in the next three year, years for another 300 apartments. And these are filling up a lot of uh, mid-rise buildings that have been vacant or underutilized for, for decades. So that's a great change. Uh, having Harrisburg University in Center City uh, is, is part of, of the of this overall mix. The fact that Penn National Insurance uh, on Market Square uh, chose to be right there in Center City when there were some uh, options for them to, to build, you know, in a 40-acre tract out on the on the fringes uh, of, of the capital region. But uh, uh, there were economic incentives that were offered, and that really is, is an important part of it. When, when a city can offer tax abatement or other kinds of, of economic incentives to either keep or bring uh, corporations into an urban area. And, and Harrisburg has been, been very good with this, uh, probably a leader uh, among mid-sized cities in Pennsylvania anyway. But you're talking about Center City. Something else that Aaron brought up, and he, he mentioned the word neighborhoods. You know, this is not just a criticism of, of Harrisburg. I mean, there have been times where uh, former mayors have been uh, criticized for paying attention to, like, Second Street, for example, in Harrisburg Restaurant Row. Uh, now Midtown is getting a lot of attention. But you have people who will say, well, what about the neighborhoods where, uh, you know, many people, most people are living inside this, the boundaries of the city of Harrisburg? What do you do to revitalize some of those neighborhoods? Well, the policies are one thing and, and sort of what the public wants to do or another. Restaurant Row was really a a phenomenon of the marketplace more than than a, a decision by the government, uh, and uh, and in fact, Restaurant Row really usurped what was already kind of an official plan to make Third Street the 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 restaurant uh, destination 
20 years ago. But okay, that's what happens. Uh, we're probably thinking in this conversation about about the Allison Hill neighborhood and uh, and 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 the the uptown area up around Six and McClay, all up and through there. These are these are distressed areas where the the uh, there there's poverty uh, and um, and actually when you go through those neighborhoods you will see uh, new construction ha- housing that has been developed uh, in the last couple of decades uh, it, it 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 really can't be done by by government alone but uh, but the government has has I think made a, a uh, as good an effort with the resources it has to address those communities. Well, yeah, I mean, we know that Harrisburg has had, uh, you know, some dire uh, f- financial uh, situations here in the last uh, 20 years. And, uh, you know, we're just coming out of that uh, now. Uh, but, and, and again, I said this, this is not unique to Harrisburg. This is a challenge that all cities face is, you know, what do we do to try to improve, try to revitalize these neighborhoods, make them safer, for example. You know, and that brings up a, a, a point. Central Pennsylvania, when you, you turn on the local television news at night, for example, and you hear about a crime being committed in Harrisburg, in York, and Lancaster, maybe in Perry County, but in in some of the urban areas, a lot of people who live outside those cities will say, well, it's not safe in the city once they hear those. Is that perception a problem? I think it is, and I think that's not unique to central Pennsylvania. No. If you no. watch the, the, the Philadelphia news stations, you're getting the same kind of, of imagery. Uh, it's kind of a fact of life. Uh, how dangerous does it make it for you to, to, to walk uh, a, a sidewalk in the city or to live in a house in a city? Uh, you ask people that have lived there for decades, and they'll say, I- "I've, you know, nothing has ever happened to me or my house." So uh, it-, it is perception, and uh, and I can say that myself. Nothing has ever. I've lived in in the Midtown area for for close to forty years, and uh, uh, virtually without incident. And and I and I'm not afraid to walk home at midnight. Uh, sure, things have happened a block from where I live, but uh, but things happen everywhere. All right, let's take some phone calls here. Spencer is in Newville. Spencer, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Certainly enjoy uh, every day listening. Thank you. Uh, I have a question. I'm listening to Dave. Apparently he has a broad uh, expanse on uh, the subject of restoration of uh, old properties. Uh, I'm on the board uh, of directors in Biglerville, and um, the Biglerville Country Store, the old Thomas brother, right there in the center of town. And we are uh, really struggling to try to find the right blend of what to do with that building that was built in 1902, and uh, it's been in that family now until the last sister died a year and a half ago. And it's just loaded with good old stuff, uh, and there's there's a lot of challenges as to what we want to think about. There's no parking, and... Um, uh, I, I'm just interested in hearing maybe Dave's take. May, maybe you've been there, Dave. I don't know. A lot of people in central Pennsylvania have been in and out of that store. And um, we just are open to any and all uh, suggestions as to uh, what's available maybe grant-wise. So you're facing some challenges. Pardon me? You're, you're facing some challenges. Oh, many. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for your call. You know, Spencer brings up a good point. He's talking specifically about one structure, but we could be talking about hundreds throughout central Pennsylvania. What are some of the challenges? What are some of the solutions? I, I think he, he raises the point that historic preservation isn't just an urban uh, 
activity. It, it's just as important uh, in in small towns like Biglerville. Uh, I'm not that familiar with Biglerville. I think I've been there once, and I've, I can't quite picture this building. But uh, there are a lot of wonderful old small towns which were which were developed uh, before the age of the automobile, uh, where walkability and things like that were very important. We're starting to see, you know, a, a, a returning emphasis and an interest in walkable communities, and I think that's going to. We're going to see in the next couple of decades, people are going to are going to seek out places like Biglerville or or Newport or or. Uh, Millersburg, uh, as really cool places to live. If that, you know, you don't. We don't all have to live in a city. But the, you know, some of the questions he asked specifically about what kind of help or what kind of assistance is there available. Where's a good place to start in looking for those kind of things? The Pennsylvania Downtown Center uh, is, is a resource. Uh, in fact, they're located in the second floor of, of our building uh, in Midtown Harrisburg, and they provide consulting services uh, to communities that are struggling with the kind of downtown issues that uh, that Spencer is talking about. Uh, Preservation Pennsylvania is a statewide organization, also headquartered in Harrisburg, which uh, will respond to inquiries like this. The state Bureau for Historic Preservation, which is which is part of the Historical and Museum Commission, and they're headquartered in the in the top floor of the of the State Museum. Uh, that's their role as well. So there are resources. Uh, funding is harder to come by than it was in decades past. Uh, but there but there are there are Keystone grants which uh, which go for historic preservation. And there are other other kinds of of things available. All right, let's take a phone call from Pam in Harrisburg. Pam, you're on the air. Hi. Great show, as usual. Thank, Thank you, Scott. Thank um, you. One of the great things you touched upon, a uh, great question about bringing in more industry and stuff like that. Um, why can't we get an uh, incubator for blue-collar-type uh, businesses? Startup is a great organization, which started with a small uh, area now they're big, but they're white collar. We've got to get some of these industrial uh, buildings on the fringes divided up into thousand and two thousand type uh, square foot incubator type businesses. Also, your walkability I've got to uh, put in for this is wonderful. One of the key aspects of that is also bicycle. Bicycle Harrisburg is very very important for the revitalization. And also get rid of this parking uh, people, the uh, commission. Thank you. All right, thank you for your call. The, the parking thing sounds like an opinion, but uh, as far as her point, Pam's point about uh, an industrial incubator. Well, uh, I, I think she is touching on a need, and that is uh, to expand uh, uh, job opportunities uh, that are not white collar jobs. Uh, you know, that may be a, a national or even a global issue where manufacturing uh, is uh, is is overseas and and what do we do about that that may be a bigger issue than 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 historic Harrisburg Association or the city of Harrisburg could address but we do have state government in our backyard and I I think the Department of Community and Economic Development this is exactly the kind of thing that they uh, that they wrestle with and 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 try to resolve which is is uh, job growth uh, at all levels and uh, uh, I, I have to say I'm, I'm not an expert uh, in that area, but I certainly agree with Pam that that's an important uh, uh, issue. But she mentioned two things also, uh, you know, walking, walkability, you've mentioned that a couple times, uh, but also bicycles that uh, Harrisburg, or especially along, along Front Street, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, you know using their bikes more often. Uh, let's take another phone call from Tom in York. Tom, you're on the air. Tom, you should probably turn your radio down, Tom. Hey, Tom. All right. Well, let me uh, put Tom on hold. We'll tell him, hey, do you want to tell Tom that uh, turn his radio down and just listen to me? Go, go ahead. 
Okay. Because <laughs> we'll be a few minutes anyway. Heather Woolbridge is uh, my producer here in the back of the room, and I just wanted to make sure that we get Tom's uh, uh, call on the air because he does uh, say something that I know a lot of people, um, you know, think is one of the keys uh, to uh, urban revitalization. Uh, National Register of Historic Places. You know, we've seen those buildings where, uh, you know, you see that plaque out front. And I I always, my eyes always are directed when I'm walking through a town, a city, and see that plaque. I'm like, okay, what I want to say, I'm taking more interest. Talk about that. The National Register was started uh, uh, shortly after World War II, I guess in the 1950s. Uh, and it's it's a way of of documenting uh, historic properties, whether that whether from a, a architectural significance or something historic happened there, uh, and and it's administered at the state level. And the State Bureau for Historic Preservation that I mentioned here in in Harrisburg, uh, they do all the review process. They send the, the their recommendations to the Department of Interior uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, has an office which which gives final approval. And there there's thousands, tens of thousands of 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 individual properties and historic districts that are now listed on the National Register. And, uh, and and so many that, that actually they've made it harder to get listed than it used to be. Uh, but, uh, but that does provide uh, a distinction, first of all, and it also for uh, investment properties, it provides a, a, a great financial incentive as well. Let's take a call from Tom in York. Tom, you're, are you there? Well, I guess Tom's no longer there. <laughs> okay, he was going to talk about it, and, and his question was, what about the young professionals, the creative classes they've been called by many people in uh, revitalizing the city? Well, yes, that's uh, certainly, that's that's been a very visible and dynamic uh, uh, aspect of of. Uh, of revitalizing Harrisburg that we've seen. Um, there are a number of, of, of web development uh, businesses that, uh, that have sprung up and, and chosen to occupy historic buildings uh, in Harrisburg, and, and their employees are, uh, they're riding bikes, they're walking, they want to jog on the riverfront, they, they, they want to live in older houses. I, I don't mean to stereotype them, but I think that is... Uh, uh, a, a, a very uh, healthy trend, and uh, a lot of new businesses that that didn't even exist two or three years ago now employing thirty, forty people. Uh, um, uh, we just heard of a public relations business that expanded from from six people to fifty people and is occupying the King Mansion on Front Street. Uh, uh, just signed a lease for that. Historic Harrisburg Association does a lot more, like uh, candlelight house tours. Uh, talk about, because we only have a few minutes left, what are some of the other things that you would like uh, people to know about your association? The annual candlelight house tour, we just had it in December. It's always the second Sunday. That showcases anywhere from 15 to 20 properties. We It started the same year as Historic Harrisburg, and in that time, Hundreds of properties have been seen by an audience that now numbers in the tens of thousands. So that tour, while it's a fundraiser for us, it really is a great way to to vividly show people what the alternatives are in terms of living in various uh, types of older houses uh, in Harrisburg. We've actually even had some of the tours outside of the city in places like Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Morrison is the acting di- executive director of the Historic Harrisburg Association. David, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Central Pennsylvanian Robert Garrett has attended every presidential inauguration since 1961 when John F. Kennedy took the oath of office. The 58-year-old Garrett will be in Washington in front of the Capitol tomorrow when Donald Trump is sworn in as the nation's 45th president. Robert Garrett joins us on the phone. Mr. Garrett, welcome to the program. It's 
good to join you. It was uh, great uh, listening to my neighbor, Dave Morrison, a few moments ago. So it's good to be here today. So are you, you live in the city. You live in Harrisburg. I do. Yeah, yeah. I live in uh, Midtown Harrisburg. I'm, I'm actually um, uh, north of Harrisburg right now. I'm the president and CEO of the Greater Susquehanna Valley Chamber of Commerce. We're up in Union, Snyder, Northumberland, Montour County, and I'm in Shemokin Dam uh, specifically today. Well, you have quite a commute then. Yeah, it's a it's a delightful commute along the river uh, every day, and you know, for about two decades, I made the commute the other direction, and I can tell you, it's a lot more fun uh, reverse commuting uh, and watching all that traffic coming into Harrisburg as I'm heading north uh, every day uh, on my way to work. So. It, it, it's working out just fine. My my wife uh, uh, works right in the city, so it works out for her. And uh, I have a little bit of a drive, but it, it it's working out just fine. Well, we didn't want to talk about your drive here today, or at least that wasn't our uh, main focus. We wanted to talk about uh, your your experiences with inaugurations. As I said, your first one, you were two years old in 1961 when John F. Kennedy was sworn in as president. How did that happen that uh, you started this tradition? Well, my my parents were uh, both very interested uh, in public policy. I won't say that they were uh, particularly political, uh, although they were very interested in public policy. I've always been told that my grandmother was one of the first elected females in Lancaster County. Uh, we grew up in a little town of, uh, I grew up in a little town of Atglen, uh, which is right on the Lancaster-Chester County line in western uh, Chester County. And and uh, and they bundled us all up and uh, took us down. We were uh, we were Kennedy kids. Uh, grew up in a town where there was a lot of excitement uh, about our new president and the, uh, uh, with the Kennedys. And uh, uh, and I've always heard the stories. I have no personal recollection of the uh, of the president uh, saying his very famous words about ask not what. Uh, what you can, what the country can do for you, but what the what you can do for the country, or uh, passing a torch onto a new generation. But I've uh, certainly heard recordings of it, and I've heard many family stories about traveling down to the uh, Kennedy inauguration. So the first inauguration, from what I understand, that uh, you do have some memories of, uh, was in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson was sworn in after uh, winning re-election. What do you remember? I, I remember, uh, you know, I was I was certainly old enough to know what was going on uh, in the community. If you think about if you think about Pennsylvania uh, in the uh, mid '60s, you know, um, uh, it was a time of there was quite a bit of uh, of uh, strife, uh, both around racial topics as well as around the Vietnam War. I came from a town where lots of young men uh, went and served, and some. Uh, honestly died uh, in Vietnam. So I, I remember that being very much uh, front of the mind uh, to my family. And, and, you know, they desperately wanted to hear uh, the president talk about what we're going to do to, uh, to heal our nation and uh, also to uh, bring this, uh, this uh, war to an end. Um, of course, it wasn't, uh, wasn't for a few more years uh, till it ended, uh, the great uh, secret plan to end the Vietnam War is still a secret, uh, <laughs> Vietnamization, et cetera. And um, uh, but uh, you know there, there's a lot of hope, and that's that's what I really enjoy about inaugurations. When you stand out there in the throngs of hundreds of thousands of people uh, in the mall, there's always a lot of uh, anticipation, and people are really looking forward uh, to hearing the president talk about. Um, what their ideas are, you know, as they soar rhetorically, they try to hang on to the the few nuggets of uh, policy uh, that the president will say. Of course, I'll be listening very carefully. There's a couple of uh, areas uh, as a chamber president that I'm interested in. Although if the if the president uh, only talks about the things I'm interested in, or it'll, it'll be a really boring speech. So I hope <laughs> he he. Uh, I, but I do hope he's uh, very celebratory. Uh, but yet uh, conciliatory towards uh, uh, the fact that uh, we are a divided nation, uh, and uh, and I hope he uh, extends his hand um, both uh, with his words as well as uh, 
literally extends his hand, uh, uh, you know, certainly to the Clintons who will be there and to others um, that we need to we need to work together. The the work of governing is hard work, and uh, and it's time for us to start to work together. So let's uh, let's go back with a, a few of the inaugurations, and then we can talk a little bit more about uh, tomorrow. Uh, okay. You mentioned uh, the secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, and that came from candidate Richard Nixon, uh, who was sworn in for his first term in 1969, and then uh, re-election in 1973. So, what do you remember? By that time, you're 10, you're 14 years old for those uh, those two uh, inaugurations. You probably remember a little bit more. Yeah, I, I do have uh, uh, much more vivid recollections of uh, both of those. Uh, I remember one of them being particularly bad weather, <laughs> you know, very cold and being frozen. Uh, the other thing is, is for those inaugurations, I have a, uh, had an aunt that uh, lived outside of uh, Richmond, Virginia, so we went actually went down the night before and uh, visited uh, with my state of my aunt and then came up from Richmond, which was a little easier to get to. Uh, you know, at that time, you drove into the city. Uh, tomorrow, for example, we'll take the metro uh, into the city. Um, uh, but you always thought about the logistics of how to get into, uh, into the uh, town. But I, I recall uh, from the Nixon uh, inaugurations uh, taking notes because, uh, you know, we had to make a report uh, hand in uh, the next day uh, at school about why we missed school and, uh, and what did we hear uh, the president talk about. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't remember any of those great uh, – there's, there's not a lot uh, about Nixon's speeches that, uh, that stick with me. Uh, uh, now, if I, had to, if I had to come up with a quote, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to search it real quickly. Uh, but I do remember, uh, you know, being a student uh, and uh, taking notes. And, and, uh, and it'll be interesting tomorrow because uh, I'll be there with a, a young man who's a sophomore in high school. And it'll be, I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll smile if I look over and see him taking notes as the president is speaking. He'll probably be using his cell phone and recording it. But, uh, you know, things, things have changed. Um, so this became a tradition. I mean, you, you go once because of uh, President Kennedy. You go twice. It's starting to become a tradition. Uh, when did your family realize that, hey, we want to go to every inauguration or at least this is a this is a goal of ours? Yeah, I, I think it was something uh, I'm the youngest of a family of four children. And I'm sure if you were talking to my uh, brothers or sisters, they would tell you, oh, yeah, I remember the uh, I remember Eisenhower. I remember, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, Truman, all those sort of things. Uh, but um, um, uh, I, I think it was just something my, my parents uh, always thought that this is a moment in time. Let's try to get down there. Um, uh, you know, growing up in southeastern Pennsylvania, it wasn't that difficult. Uh, um, I-95 had not been built, of course, uh, for some of those early inaugurations, but it was fairly easy to get down to D.C. It was a nice uh, family getaway. Um, weather typically was a little better <laughs> in Washington, D.C. Uh, than it was uh, in Pennsylvania, so, you know, we'd make a day of it and take a picnic along, et cetera. Uh, but it was just a, a family thing that we did. You know, families have their traditions. This was one of the traditions that uh, the Garrett family had was to, to get down to the inaugurations. Anything you remember about uh, the Jimmy Carter inauguration? Uh, well, actually, it was the, the main thing for me was it was the first one where I had actually uh, participated uh, in the uh, in the election. I was able to vote. Uh, you know, the, with uh, eighteen year olds had been uh, given the right to vote by then, and I was uh, I was uh, between my senior year and uh, first year in college, and uh, uh, so I was very uh, interested uh, in uh, in the election. You know, we were coming out of the, the Watergate era. You know, the Vietnam War was over. Uh, there was a lot of high expectations. I recall, um, you know, the nation's bicentennial had just been celebrated, and very, very high expectations. Uh, and uh, I don't remember, um, uh, you know, specifics of the speech, uh, but I certainly remember being there and remember uh, people being very hopeful uh, that a lot of that that ugliness uh, had gotten behind us. Uh, Ronald the, Reagan. Uh, previous years. Ronald Reagan in 1981. Now, this is actually yeah. the only inauguration I ever attended because it was the first 
presidential inauguration since I had uh, gotten into the business, into uh, the journalism business, and uh, covered it. Uh, but one of the the big events was not so much the inauguration itself as the American hostages being released from Iran. You remember that, don't you? I, I, was, I, I remember it like it happened 10 minutes ago. You know, we were standing, and it was the first one I was out in the mall, and if you were there, you know it was massive. It was. It was a huge crowd, and I was pretty far out uh, in the mall, and it felt like the word was being passed down um, through the crowd. Somehow it, uh, somebody up front had found out about it, because, you know, when the folks, the folks that are up front are the ones with the tickets. The hundreds of thousands of people are just the uh, average American standing out in the mall, and and uh, you know it was word of mouth. There was cell phones uh, weren't around yet, and it was word of mouth, and and we, we just couldn't believe it. That uh, like, wait a second, this guy's been the president for for uh, 15 minutes here, uh, and this has happened already. And you know, you, you were hearing things that morning, uh, and uh, and you know, it, it was it was a lot of jubilation. Uh, I recall, and people very, very happy that uh, that they were, you know, the, the hostages were coming home. Yeah, and the Iranians pretty much did it uh, as a slap in the face to Jimmy Carter, waited until the new president was inaugurated. In 85, I remember, there was a huge snowstorm. They moved it indoors. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, moving ahead a little bit, uh, let's go to, I mean, you're George Bush, H.W. Bush, who was in the hospital, by the way. We heard a lot about him yesterday. Right. Bill Clinton inaugurated in uh, 1993. What do you remember about that inauguration? Uh, well, that was the, the first inauguration. I actually uh, was able to take one of my children along with me to, to, to uh, again, keep the tradition uh, rolling. Uh, my oldest son came along. Uh, we, were, uh, we were lucky enough to have, uh, we actually had tickets. We were up front. Uh, and uh, I remember, uh, uh, you know, uh, again, a lot of uh, a lot of excitement about this. This very youthful uh, uh, president uh, was back. You know, the um, uh, President Bush had gotten off to a good start. President Bush, the H. W. Bush, was off to a good start, and uh, but it sort of petered out towards the end of his. Um, his administration, and now there was this excitement about this young, uh, exciting guy, uh, governor of uh, Arkansas, uh, and, uh, and you know, lots of uh, lots of very uh, uh, pleasant memories about being right down front for mm. that. that well, was exciting. we only have about ninety seconds left, and I hate to skip yep. administrations, but uh, I remember the the Obama, the first Obama inauguration, and yeah. when you talked about the huge crowd at Reagan. The Obama first inauguration, I think that was a record setter as far as people. Would you agree? That's my understanding is, yeah. I, I know that uh, I was in about in the middle of the mall. I was the second Megatron back, if you will, as you looked out the mall. And there were people well beyond the Washington Monument. Uh, so I don't know how uh, the National Park Service estimates uh, numbers. Uh, but there, I mean, there was, there was a lot of people in Washington yeah. that day. We only have about 30 seconds left, Bob. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you were able to come on the air and describe some of these things. You talked about what you're looking for tomorrow. Uh, would you say that, uh, how would you characterize these inaugurations? You used the, cel- the, the word celebratory. How would you characterize them in 30 seconds or less? Yeah, I would just say that they are, it's a time of celebration, uh, but it's also a time of healing and bringing our nation back together. So it's both celebration and uh, conciliatory that they, this will be the, uh, Donald Trump's chance to make the first absolute history of his administration, and I hope he uh, takes advantage of it and makes very positive history for us. Do you have tickets tomorrow, Bob? I do not. I'll you be don't. out in the. Uh, I'll be way out in the out in the middle of the pack. The sea of people. Yeah. Bob Garrett has yeah. been to every inauguration since 1961. Thank you very much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. On tomorrow's program, we discuss the inauguration with NPR Scott Detrow, who will be in Washington, and several others as well. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. 
Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Women's Cancer Center, delivering preventive, diagnostic, surgical, medical, and chemotherapy services to women with gynecologic cancer or other conditions related to the reproductive systems. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org slash WCC.